The rest of you can open up to Luke chapter 12. We have made it to chapter 12 this morning. Now, maybe some of you have heard this idea that being a Christian is not just a bunch of do's and don'ts. Well, I'm here to debunk that myth for you. Christianity certainly is not just a bunch of do's and don'ts. Christianity is a relationship with the living hope that we just sang of Jesus Christ, right? That through Jesus Christ, we have a living relationship with the living God. So is Christianity a list of rules or is it a relationship? If I had to pick one or the other, clearly I would say it's a relationship. But think about this with me for a moment. Being in relationship actually presupposes that there are some do's and don'ts. Some are implied and some are very explicit. Let me take the marriage relationship for a moment. Are there do's and don'ts in a marriage relationship? You better believe it. Most of you, when you got married, you stood in front of some people sort of like this, in a setting sort of like this, and you made these vows. And by vowing that for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, you are committing yourselves before God and witnesses. You are vowing yourself. You are covenanting to some do's and don'ts. You're a brand new private in the military. Are there do's and don'ts in that relationship between you and your drill sergeant? I've never been in the military, but yes, there is. How about teacher-student? How about two new roommates sort of figuring out? There's do's and don'ts in relationship. So hear me clearly. Christianity primarily is a relationship. But, but to chuck all the do's and don'ts from it actually is not how relationships work. So here's what we're seeing today. Today, Jesus turns his attention. He is telling his friends a little bit more about what it means to follow him. And he uses four don'ts, some really clear don'ts. Now, a quick hint. If your idea of Jesus doesn't include conflict and controversy with both religious people and irreligious people, then I would submit to you that your idea of Jesus is a made-up image of your own mind more so than what the scriptures talk about Jesus is. So in other words, if, if your Jesus is not controversial, if your Jesus doesn't have conflict, th- then I would say you're, you're, not, you're not constructing your idea of who Jesus is from the scriptures. Let me take two different types of personalities. You're probably not quite as extreme as either one of these, but you'll get the idea. A conflict-loving revolutionary will be confronted in the scriptures by the distastefulness of Jesus' long-suffering, his patience, his second chances, his radical inclusiveness as to who the kingdom of God is for, and his endless hope for all kinds of people. That will frustrate the revolutionary. And conversely, a puppy-loving, sunset-appreciating, controversy-avoiding type of person will absolutely chafe at Jesus' sharp-tongued critique of the synagogue leadership, his insistence on wrath, judgment, and narrow solutions, and his, his constant talk about scary things that are out there, scary things that are to come, and frankly, scary things that that dwell in the human heart. That person will just want to go, la, 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 
and not hear those things of Jesus. Jesus confronts us in our natural wiring. If you are naturally wired one way, Jesus will come alongside and complete the picture and utterly frustrate you. You adjust to that reality or you keep the Jesus you want. Has Jesus been used to to create revolutionary war? Absolutely. Has Jesus been used, has his name been used to cowardly not confront sin and wickedness in a culture? Absolutely. So, so, so do you see that our vision of Jesus better include contra, conflict and controversy uh, or, or else we need to go back to the scriptures and pray for a real picture? Jesus constantly preps his followers. He, his, his, his ever teaching that to follow him is to invite problems into your life. It's to invite challenge into your life and trials into your life. This is true of any time and place. Let me give you two key teachings of Jesus that I think in our culture, in the Bay Area, 2019, will take you and put you on the outs with many, many people, okay? These are two statements. Now, in different cultural settings and in different times in our own area, this wouldn't be that controversial. Right now, these are two really hot-button controversial things. We just saw from Jesus not long ago that he presents every single person from every nation for all of time in one of two categories, sheep or goat. Now, that's church speak, Bible speak for being on God's team, a child of God, right? or on Satan's team, a child of the devil. That's controversial, is it not? That's an ongoing teaching of Jesus. Here's a second one. This will land you in hot water quicker. Like if you're, if you're bored and you don't have controversy in your life, just talk about this tomorrow in the break room, right? Or just on the way to class somewhere. Did you know that Jesus is the only way to God? That there's no other life, that there's no other truth, that there's no other path to take except, except Jesus. There's a lot of people claiming to be the door to God. They're all wrong. By this being true, it necessitates that everything else is wrong. Did you know that? I mean, just say that. Just, just try that amongst people. And you will be immediately challenged on that, is my guess. That's my hunch. So those are two teachings that these aren't obscure things that he said one time. And there's possibility for misinterpretation. These are core teachings that Jesus taught. So the question for a Christian is not, will I be mocked and hated for my beliefs and lifestyle? The question for the Christian are twofold. It's when and to what degree will I be mocked and hated for my beliefs and my lifestyle? And, ready? Will I pass the test? Will I stay true in the face of that trial? Will I, will I love the face of Jesus shining on me and approving of me? Or will I cave to that and actually give in to get sort of the short-term temporal approval of the sort of cultural temperature that's, that's, that's going on right now? That's what the passage is going to look at today. Luke is a biographer of Jesus. And what he does here is he, he shifts the scene from last week to this really prickly dinner with sort of the, uh, you know, uptight religious referees. That's what we called them a few weeks ago when we were looking at Pharisees. They're the uptight religious referees, right? 
He has a prickly dinner with these guys, and now the scene shifts to this really intimate conversation with just his friends. There's throngs of people around, but he's talking just to his disciples. So let me invite you uh, as a Christian to kind of huddle up and listen in with Jesus as he talks to his apprentices. He says, hey, come here, guys. Let me make sure that you get what just went on at dinner and what's going on right now. I have some really important messages for you. If you're not a believer yet, welcome. I I love that you're in church. This is a a place for you to test ideas and hear ideas and hear from the scriptures. But, But know that this morning, this is a huddle for his followers. So you actually can listen in one step removed and go, I'm not sure if I'm going to follow Jesus yet or not. These people, they're all in. They're following Jesus. Let me hear... What it looks like to, to be an apprentice of Jesus. Let me look, like, look, look at what it means to be a, a, a follower of Christ. You're going to get a little snapshot of that this morning. Luke chapter 12, verse 1. It says, In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first. So just as Ben said last week, it was a, it was a bookended uh, dinner. There was a starting point and an ending point to that little scene. Luke sort of wrapped it up. What, what, what Luke is saying here is he's saying, listen really carefully. This is for his disciples first. He's not talking to the throngs of people yet. He's pulling his disciples in close. And then he gives a bunch of don'ts. And this don't list, as I'm calling it this morning, is not in place of, of a relationship to his followers. Rather, it is a vital picture of some of what it means to be in relationship with Jesus. If you show up first day on the job, if you show up in a classroom and you get the curriculum from the teacher, if you show up wide-eyed at boot camp, if you show up for pre-marriage counseling, there's a, there's a definition of the relationship. Here's, here's how this is going to go. And Jesus is the one in authority. He's teaching us. This is, this is what it means to follow. And he gives us four don'ts. All right, so you can follow along by, by jotting these down in, in your notes if you'd like. The first up is don't fake. What do we call a fake? We call them two-faced. We call them frauds, imposters, posers. Or as my dad would say, he'd say they're phony balonies, right? These are people who are just fakes. Still in verse 1, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up. That will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Now this idea of being two-faced is being completely redefined by uh, technology. There's a little app that, that people entertain themselves with. And um, we, used to, we used to hear this thing, the, the wonderful world of Disney. Let me show you the terrifying world of Disney because of this app. Okay, Here it is. Um, we, we, we see face swapping right on, on, some, on some, some of our favorite uh, characters. Here's Carl looking a little bit peppier than he normally does in the movie. Uh, mildly disturbing. Yeah. Um, there's Belle and crazy old Maurice uh, looking frightening. And this one might be the most terrifying of all. Um, we all feel a little crabby sometimes. This, by the way, just a, just a quick word of caution. Uh, those of you who are doing this with your toddler or baby, uh, this is going to cost you parents thousands of dollars in counseling fees one day. Like there are some images your toddler can't unsee. So when they see your scraggly face on their little body and they burst out crying, maybe you should stop with the face swapping with your toddler. Just, just, a, just a thought. This app actually makes both points. 
This idea of being two-faced, right? Swapping identities with someone, playing a role that you aren't really. And it makes this point. It's fake. Jesus says no to both of these. Don't swap faces and don't be fake. Don't live behind the mask, a wall of secrecy, playing roles or playing to the crowds. What's interesting is what people for generations did sort of, they sort of internally sorted this out in their own internal life. Now technology makes it possible for you to manage the vibe that you present on Instagram, manage uh, what you're putting forth on your different social media outlets at work and in different places. And, 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 and this highly edited sort of persona that, that you can put out to the world. This is exactly what a hypocrite was. It was a play actor. So someone playing a role in one scene and then changing clothes and playing a different role for another scene. And Jesus says, do not live that way. In fact, the Bible warns us of this. The Bible warns us that the heart is deceitful enough to think that we can pull this off. But what this is, is this is disintegrated, disjointing to the human soul. And what that turns into is disturbing. Far more than a face swap picture. It's disturbing to your soul. You were, you were designed to live not disintegrated, but integrated. That your heart, that your soul, that your body, that your mind, the seen parts of you, which we really emphasize in our culture right now, and those unseen parts of you, that those would live integrated, not disjointed, but joined together. Integrity and integrated derive from the Latin word that means wholeness or unbroken. Puts a whole new spin on these words from Jesus. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Friends, how much money in our culture is being spent on medication, legal prescribed medication, and not so legal unprescribed medication, to sort of mask over this fact that we cannot live disjointed lives? It's exhausting to the human soul. There's not wholeness, there's, there's brokenness. So faking it is not only unhealthy, it's unhealthy because you don't actually develop the real you. A giant part of sort of middle school and sort of coming of age is you sort of try on different personas, don't you? And you're like, I think I'm going to try to be like that. I really look up to that person. I'm going to try this. I'm going to see if I'm good at that. And much of middle school is sort of trying those things on. High school sort of continues that. But, but we weren't wired to just do that for a, a, a whole lifetime. So not only is it unhealthy, it's actually folly, which means you cannot do it. Here's why. God is the ever-present witness. Psalm 139 is not in your notes. You could jot down Psalm, Psalm 139, but Psalm 139 used to be a passage that would at times comfort me in my early Christian walk, at times terrify me in my early Christian walk. God is the ever-present witness, which on any given moment of every, any given day is a great source of comfort or possibly a great source of terror in your life. 
Hebrews 4.13 says this, No creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Interesting passage. It says, Not only does God see you, the one who sees you, the ever-present witness, watch this, is the same one to whom you're going to give an account to. The ever-present witness is the judge. What? Again, really sobering. Really highlights the gospel of grace that we cling to, Christians. So it's utter folly to fake it. Glenn Miller was one of my favorite professors at San Jose Christian College long before he became a friend and a co-worker, my boss at Valley, at Valley Church. He grabbed me by the arm one day after getting an A on one of his tests. He was notoriously highly demanding as a teacher. And I walked out of the class, I think with 100% on one of his things. He grabs me by the arms. He says, Carlson! That's how he talks, like a military dude. Carlson! And he talks way too close to you. He's like, right here. <laughs> he said, listen... He said something, something along these lines. He said, discipline in one area of life is a signpost for discipline in other areas that people can't see. So the fact that you were disciplined to get an A on this test encourages me. Because the reverse is also true. Little tiny lapses, little tiny cracks that you see in people who are trying to manage an image, and we all are to some level. It's just sort of an indicator that there are some deeper roots in there, that there are other lapses, there are other undisciplined areas, there are other areas that aren't so, aren't so shiny. This is how it is with hypocrisy. When I think, how could I possibly describe this? I know, it's like yeast, it's like leaven, it's right from our passage. Right? The illustration's built into it. Uh, I, I, I didn't do this. I was going to ask Ben if he'd stop by Stan's Donuts. If you've ever seen a Stan's Donuts raised glaze, I mean, this thing is just a glorious, it's better than the trophy. I could sit here and hold this thing. You'd get it. You'd get it because there's, there's, there's this principle to yeast. Now, in a, in a Stan's raised glaze, it's, it's a glorious thing. But with hypocrisy of the soul, it's, it's a really wicked thing. What are the properties of yeast? Well, uh, seemingly insignificance in size yields dramatic results. Secondly, there's not an ounce of that raised glaze that isn't pervasively affected by that, by that yeast. Some of our translations say leaven. Same word. So when you think of the properties of this, Jesus is saying that's hypocrisy. It's pervasive. A seemingly tiny amount that you, that, that you let in is going to have exponential results for the negative so don't let it in even the tiniest amount is deadly so jesus warns us don't fake when you're not tempted to fake it you'll be tempted in an entirely different direction in that sphere that's the second one don't fear people who fear are people pleasers those who play to the crowd those who are approval addicts those who are validation junkies. Verse 4. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell, I, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? 
and not one of them is forgotten by God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, for you are more valuable than many sparrows. I think that fear and faking it are cousins. They sort of tie into one another. In fact, I think it's fear of people that leads us to fake it in the first place. If we know that God's an ever-present witness, and we know that God's the one to whom we're going to give an account, he's the judge, we're not faking it for God. The principle is this. If God remembers the small things, how much more will God remember the big things? He won't forget you. If even the hair and a single bird is not trivia in God's economy of knowledge and watchfulness, how much more you, person, the whole person, the one to whom he sends his son to die to redeem back. He says, don't do it. Don't fear. Don't trade in fear of the one that buys you eternity, that gains you eternity, in favor of ones who will turn on you in the end anyways. With every single point I could ever make in the scriptures, Jesus illustrates it perfectly. I mean, he is the perfectly lived life. So let me just take you to a really recent experience that Luke showed us, which is last week, this little dinner party that Jesus has at the Pharisee's house. Jesus gives sermons in church. Jesus gives sermons on hillsides to thousands, like a big conference. Jesus gives little mini sermons right at dinner. And Jesus gives little many sermons in a huddle with some of his closest friends. Jesus even gives one-on-one sermons to like women who are just going out to get water at a well. He's always just sharing and talking and teaching and modeling. So here's his sermon at the dinner party with the uptight religious referees. Ready? Here it is. Point one. Pharisees are hypocrites. Point two. Pharisees will be condemned. Point three. Lawyers, you're also hypocrites, and you'll be condemned. Conclusion, give your soul to God, and you'll be clean inside and outside. Could you pass the hummus, please? That's his sermon. That was his dinner party. I mean, just go and read last week's thing, beginning to end. That's a little dinner party that he has. And he illustrates this point. Evidently, Jesus fears not fulfilling being the good doctor who prescribes the right remedy and the right diagnosis to people he fears that obviously way more than cultural norms he fears it more than than the uncomfortableness that this is going to create at this dinner party he fears it way more than the opinions of the pharisees who were those in charge of the religious system at the time he fears it more than getting on their bad side clearly because that's what he just does by doing this What's really powerful is to think about this. I mentioned last week, like, is it, it is really curious that Jesus keeps getting invited to dinner by those whom he's at such odds with. Like, imagine doing this at work, and they're like, would you come to dinner? And they're not going to eat you for dinner. They're, like, they're actually having you for dinner. So here's what Jesus does really perfectly. And I think, I think all of us in this room fall more naturally into one category or the other. Jesus shows up. And Jesus speaks up. Some of you, it's very natural to show up. What that means is this. Befriending those who don't share your beliefs and may even hate your lifestyle is easy for you. You genuinely love them. You genuinely befriend them. 
You're invited to their dinners. You're invited to their parties. You go to their weddings. You hang out with them socially. You may go camping with them or vacation with them. You, for you, Christian, showing up is really easy. For others of you, your natural inclination, you're just good at this. You just speak up. You lead with your faith. You wear it out loud. You have no problem sharing sort of who you are and what you're about. When things counter that, you're the one that says, excuse me, I actually think differently than that, and you engage with that. It's probably true that no one in here does this as good as Jesus. Can we all agree with that? So if this is sort of the middle, and Jesus, grace and truth, right? In every interaction, you are witnessing grace and truth in that moment. So in this moment, it called for the doctor giving some really bad news to people. Hey, you guys think you're working for God. You're not. You are working against God, and judgment is coming if you don't change and repent. That was the message. Well, that's not very loving. Of course it is. It's a diagnosis. You keep eating this way, living this way, not taking this medication, not following this path to healing, you're going to die really, really soon. You're so unloving. No, you're not. So for those of you who are really good at showing up, here's possibly a prayer for you. Pray for courage. Potentially, you get invited everywhere because you never ruffle any of anyone's feathers. Your lifestyle never confronts anyone with their sin. We're to be light. I mean, just our presence ought to be sometimes like, oh, it's annoying. There's a cop nearby. He's not doing anything to me. But I know that cops like, don't like people speeding, so I'm going to not speed. I remember something was changing in my relationship with some of my sundaris in high school when, when one of my friends let out some swear word while we're driving. And he goes, oops, sorry, Dave. And he just moved on with the conversation. I thought, that's weird. I've never said to the guy, hey, you're swearing? It deeply offends me. I never said to him, how dare you swear? God's watching. I never threw Bible verses at him. I never did any of that. But I thought, huh, just my presence in the car caused him to think, oops, sorry, Dave. Maybe you get invited everywhere because you never, ever, 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 ever speak up. Pray for courage. Pray for boldness. Pray for just integrity. Conversely, I would suspect those of you who are really, really, really good at speaking up and maybe do so sometimes in the flesh, you don't get to show up at a lot of places because no one's inviting you. They're like, please don't invite uncle so-and-so to this event. He will just get on his little bandwagon and preach all day. We just don't want that. We just want to have a good time. Did Jesus get invited places to, to people who didn't believe like him? Absolutely. It's incredible to, to read that and understand that. And did he speak up once he was there? Yeah. Were there times he was there and he didn't speak up? Yeah. So God help us. I think with the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we can both show up and speak up in the Spirit like Jesus did. We're his apprentices. We're not going to get it right every single time. But we're going we're gonna to see this alignment of saying, wow, I'm a, I'm a natural shower upper. God, you gave me opportunity, and I walked right through the door. I just opened my mouth. It was so easy. It was so great that I just got to share what I believe and why in a short, winsome way. Wow, that's, that's really powerful. 
And maybe to someone else who's a natural, bold speaker-upper, you go, man, I got invited to places. I've been trying to actually give my words to other people as a gift rather than just give them because I need to get them out. I'm testing them and saying, is this going to give grace according to the need of the moment? It's true, but is this the time and way to say it? I think there's, I think there's room for growth for all of us. I don't think, I know. A commentary that I'm studying, uh, using for this series says this, a good preacher never preaches the word unlovingly, but does preach it unflinchingly. Here's my plea. Don't help God out. Don't help God out by softening some of his rough edges. So many preachers are really, really guilty of this. I'm pretty sure this is what the scriptures are saying. I need to, I need to soften this a little bit. Don't help God out with that. I think there are so many people trying to manage God's image, and it actually it strips God of who he is. So preach it unflinchingly, but preach it lovingly. Every one of you in here fears something or someone. Don't waste your life seeking validation from people that ultimately it does not matter. And watch for just crowds. How do crowds react right now? And how did crowds react to Jesus? It doesn't last. This validation you seek, if you're doing that, it literally is like chasing after the wind. It comes and goes, and you can't even really explain it. So don't give your life to that. I want to highlight something that it's really easy to say this, where I, don't, I did not pray this morning, God, don't let me get shot by the authorities for preaching your name today. We have brothers and sisters around the world that my position, standing right here, teaching from the Bible, and you holding a Bible, runs the risk of loss of job, loss of limb, loss of family, loss of freedom, loss of life. Like, just remember, church, that's a daily reality. There are people who are choosing to be bold for Jesus today, and they are reweighing. Is it still worth it to me that I could get locked up for this? That I could get unquestioningly shot by this because the authorities have said that Christians are a massive danger to society, and it would help our city out if we got rid of them. These are brothers and sisters we should pray for. These are brothers and sisters who are fearing the one who has the authority to save or destroy them eternally. And they're choosing not to fear and obey those who have the authority to save and keep them from being destroyed temporally. Fear is one of those unproductive things unless it's real. And then fear is really, really useful. Ironically, catch this, the fear of God's judgment is the key to not experiencing God's judgment. Proverbs says that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? If you fear God's judgment, if you do not fear God's judgment, you're going to get God's judgment. Those of you who fear it and say, wow, that's something to fear. I need to alter my reality to adjust to that. Those are the ones who don't have to experience it. Here's the positive side of fearing God. Man, I've got a host of these. I'm going to just share two. Yes, it's the starting point of wisdom, but so much more. Proverbs 14, 26. I think I jotted it in your notes. It says, in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. Listen to what else fear of the Lord does. And his children will have a refuge. 
The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn to, that, that, that one may turn away from the snares of death. Ecclesiastes 12 says this, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Ready for, for this guy's assessment after he's looked at everything? He says, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let's move on. The next one is don't deny. Not fearing people paves the way for you to walk in this next don't. Verse 8. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, before we get to what is this unpardonable sin, the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, let's set that aside for one second and let's catch the, the major theme of this little paragraph. It's a stunning sentence. Picture Jesus standing between us and God in the courtroom of heaven and a key factor as to whether Jesus speaks up for us is whether we have been loyal to him in the court of public opinion. Do we acknowledge him or not? Jesus is saying, don't deny me. Don't deny your relationship with God. He says it because you'll be tempted to regularly. Speak up. Pledge your allegiance by word and deed. Don't hide. Don't remain silent. This last Friday, Eli had a field trip to Levi's Stadium. And with absolutely no influence from dad, he decided to dress appropriately. <laughs> now, this is my kid. Now, now, for those of you who are not Cowboys fans, take the, take the team away for a second. I don't want you to miss this. I grew up as a Cowboys fan in the Bay Area. You know what that prepped me to be? It prepped me to be a Christian in the Bay Area. Here's what I love about this. My little son Eli didn't do this as like, in your face, stadium workers. That wasn't his spirit at all. I just, I, I, he told me the day before he's going to wear this. I said, why are you going to wear that, buddy? He's going to a football stadium. He's, he put on his favorite jersey of his favorite team. Like, what do you mean, Dad? Like, why wouldn't I wear it? So he didn't go to, like, stick it to the man or something. He, he went just saying, man, th- this is who I am. Of all my kids, he's the only kid that will sit and just watch a whole football game with me. He loves football. Him wearing this, and by the way, I mean, this all makes sense. Like, we all know, like, not only is the, the Cowboys are America's team, we know that, but they're also God's team. And so, I mean, it, it makes it just makes sense. Just makes sense that, that he would wear this. Boo. Boo. As much as I love cowboys being passed on to the next generation, my, my, my prayer for my kids, obviously, is that, that their allegiance to Jesus would be unshakable. That even though when they're in the midst of enemy territory, Levi Stadium, that they'd, that they'd pull on the jersey. You know, Jesus gave us a gift. It's called baptism. Baptism is step one of a reality that's already gone on. Baptism doesn't magically make you regenerate in God's eyes. You know what it's doing? It's just dramatizing something that's already gone on. I have been washed clean. I have died to my old self. 
I'm raising to newness of life, and I'm following my leader the rest of my days. So when you get baptized, it's, it's not that you are... Uh, that, that that's being accomplished in that moment. It's just saying to, to the world publicly, this is what has gone on. We, we talk about this in baptism class regularly as this is like pulling on a Jesus jersey. It's saying to a watching church, where it's kind of easy to do this, they're probably going to clap for you, by the way. But when you show up at school tomorrow morning, when you go to work, when you go back to your family, when you go through your life, many will see your Jesus jersey And they'll say, you're identified on the enemy's team. I'm coming after you. But you know what I'd also do? I didn't didn't include this picture. There's one other kid in his class that had his Dallas Cowboys jersey. And his mom sent a picture of him and his buddy huddled up like this. Man, it identifies you with other believers around the world. You go, hey, we're together. I I love that you're wearing your, your, your jersey boldly. So am I. Let's band up and change the world. So, but that's step one. Believer's baptism is just, it's just step one in a lifetime of just living and proclaiming whose team you're on. You know, the opportunities for this abound if you're paying attention to this. I have this compelled t-shirt that Tim Riley gave me. I sit on his board for a ministry that trains people how to share their faith. It says, compelled to preach the gospel. I texted my buddy Tim. I said, Tim, your shirt strikes again. Almost every time I wear that shirt, it strikes up a conversation. I talked to this guy, John, at a shop, and he's, you know, he just started a conversation talking about this shirt. Far more than going out and buying a bunch of Jesus clothes, like I don't have a lot of Jesus clothes, <laughs> that's one of my few ones, but I, I do kind of like wearing it, it's kind of interesting. But far more than that, the Bible tells us, clothe yourselves with humility. Have your, have your mouth just washed with mercy and grace. Have your hands like just available and useful. Take your feet and lead them to people who need to hear the good news of Jesus. When you do that, what happens is this. All of these silent testimonies lead to powerful ability to have spoken testimonies. It, it invites you places to show up where you're now allowed to speak up. I love this idea that when we disperse out of here every single Sunday, you're going to go be the church individually at your cubicle, in your home, wherever you go, where we cannot be the church collectively. We can't all show up at your place of business tomorrow and be Jesus to people. That's your job. That's why you're at that job. We can't go be at your neighbor's house for dinner next week. That's not our job. That's your job to go and be there individually where we can't be collectively. Quickly on this unforgivable sin. Uh, warning, if you're going to work with high school students, they will ask you deep theological questions that you won't be prepared for. I remember coming across this passage as a high schooler, and I'm like, Kevin, what does this mean? You know what? He gave me an incredible answer. Write this down. This is an incredible answer that, that he gave me. He said this. He said, I don't know. And then watch this. He said, I don't know, but I will try to find out. He didn't even promise me he'd find out. He was probably shaking his boots. I have no idea what that means. I thought Jesus washes all of our sin. I've never read that verse. I'm the leader. You know why I appreciate this guy? He didn't fake it. So he just said, I don't know. Let me try and find out. Here's the short answer. And this is what he gave me. It was a pretty good answer. He said, if you're concerned about doing this sin, you are not in danger of committing this sin. That's the short answer. That gave me a lot of peace in the moment. Let me give you just a couple of things that it can't be really quick. 
This idea that if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you will, you will not be forgiven. What does it mean to have this unforgivable sin? When the whole of Scripture says that your sins are washed. Our music, our, our creeds say that we're washed clean. Well, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that there is something that the atoning work of Christ is unable to wash clean. Here's why there's a rub. 1 John 1, nine says, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from how much unrighteousness? You guys know it. All. All unrighteousness. He's faithful and just. God's not unfaithful and just. Oh, there's a side list, though. Here's what also it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that God is unwilling to forgive someone who has consciously rejected Jesus. You know who I point to? Peter. Peter knowingly rejected Jesus. Peter knowingly failed at the don't test like three times in a very short span of time. Was Peter restored and gone to to do incredible things as a man of God? Absolutely. So it can't mean either one of those things. So what is it? Here's, here's, Here's a short sentence on it. It's a warning against a persistent rejection of the Spirit's witness to Jesus as Messiah. So just think about the logic of this for a second. If you continually call into question and stand against the witness of the Holy Spirit, whose role it is to shine the light on Jesus as Messiah, then by necessity, you are not on the Jesus team. You have set yourself against Jesus. Now, many of us lived our life that way. Are we in danger? No, because if you want to, you walk over, you humble yourself, you repent, you turn around. I've been standing against this witness my whole life. I want to receive the forgiveness of sin. I want to not be in judgment of the eternal witness who's going to be held account. I want Jesus' resume on judgment day, not my own. You know who gets that? Those who request it. So back to my high school leader's answer, pretty good. If you're worried about committing that sin, it's not for you. You, you, have, you have nothing to worry about. Before living, leaving this idea of, of public identity with Jesus, put this in marriage terms and, and ponder this. Jesus calls the church his bride. When we receive Christ, it, it is, uh, baptism is a little bit like our wedding day. It's a public vow to say, I'm, I'm married to Jesus now. That is my first and eternal love. I'm married, have been, plan on continuing. Let me just throw some things out on this don't list for a second. If you were to see me act in ways around my wife that I never ever acted when she wasn't around, you, whether you say it out loud or not, you would think, oh, there's a problem there, that's weird. If I were to take off my ring, whenever I go out and she's not with me, by the way, I just had this off. This was, a, this was about to be an incredible illustration. I took this off yesterday because I took the kids surfing. I always take it off when I'm in the ocean. I came to church with no wedding ring. <laughs> I thought, oh, that's kind of like illustrating the point. If every time we were to go out, me and Ben, I just, he, he sees me. Like, whether I say it or not, I just slip my wedding ring off. You think there's a problem there? That's weird. That's a problem. 
Finally, if people badmouth my wife and I stay silent, that's a problem. People badmouth my wife and I join in or laugh at the jokes, man, I'm giving you, friends, call me on it. Whether you are at my wedding day seeing my vows or not, you call me on that. You say, Dave, that's not how a married guy is supposed to act. Now, we're the bride of Jesus Christ. Ponder. Take the don't list and ponder it in the context of marriage. The last one is don't worry. Verse 11 says this. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. God began a pattern in my life at age 17. I began to read the scriptures for myself. And I would read about handling temptation. I would read about handling anxiety. I would read about how to do your best for God. I would read about not being a hypocrite. I would read about what it means to be at peace in God. I would read about what it means to have other people's needs as more important than my own. And God would invariably, sometimes within hours, often within days, many times within weeks, he would finish the lesson in real life. My wife probably gets sick of this. I'm not sure. She's very gracious with me. But this week was no different. I came home. I said, Becky, the entire Bible is connected. (laughs) I mean, I am studying this passage in Luke. Luke 12, 1 to 12 connects with some other places. Go read Proverbs 3. That was just in my reading program this last week. It's an amazing parallel passage. I'm going to show you a, a passage in Hebrews that was just in my Bible reading. I'm, I'm reading in different places. I'm going, this all connects. I'm not that smart of a guy. Like God just illuminates that, that this is real. That these connections are here and strengthening. It happens so often that I read. And by the way, please read the Bible first for yourself. Take the medicine yourself. Feast on God yourself before you go feed other people. But as you do that, if you're paying attention all the time, People will have needs that you will speak directly to. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's giving you what to say right in the moment. You will learn to lean on that and have confidence in that. Such that I hope that on the day of of reckoning here in this valley, when they come in and say, hey, you can't do this, I won't need to memorize a bunch of principles. How do you handle it when authorities try to shut you down as a preacher? I have no idea. I've never done it. But the comforter's with me. My teacher's with me. He'll give me the words to say or not say. He'll give me the power and strength to do what I need to do in that moment. Let me have you close your eyes just for a second. These these don'ts are soul killers. Jesus loves you, church. How Jesus loves the church that he would provide. He calls us friends. Stated negatively, we see all the don'ts, but what is don't fake on the positive end? It's do walk in the light. Do strive for integrity. Say, God, I just want to be whole in front of you. How about don't fear? Maybe the positive is be fearless, but maybe it's simply be at ease. Do be at ease around other people. You don't need stuff from them. You don't need approval from them. Don't deny Do open your mouth. Do speak up. 
And don't worry, stated positively is do trust, do be expectant, do respond to what the Holy Spirit is teaching you in the moment. We're going to pass the communion elements, and as they come by, you're welcome to just take them as they come by. No one's going to come back up and lead us together. Communion is another thing Jesus left for us. He left us baptism, which is this visible, tangible picture of what it means to be a part of the family of God, to be the church. He also left us this little simple meal. Started it in the upper room with his friends. Take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Take and drink this cup. Do it together. This is the blood that I'm going to pour out on your behalf. As you take this, remember the sacrifice that I'm about to do for you. Listen carefully because there's no screen, nothing on visually that you can grab hold of this, but this is the passage I read that was so powerful. I wasn't thinking of prepping for communion. It just jumped out at me. It's from Hebrews chapter 13. It says, Under the old system, the high priest brought the blood of animals into the holy place as a sacrifice for sin, and the bodies of the animals were burned outside the camp. Watch the parallel. So also Jesus suffered and died outside the city gates to make his people holy by means of his own blood. In this passage about being bold for God, listen to this. So let us go out to him outside the camp and bear the disgrace he bore. For this world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home yet to come. Therefore, let us offer through Jesus a continual sacrifice of praise to God, proclaiming our allegiance to His name. And don't forget to do good and to share with those in need. These are the sacrifices that please God. Jesus today, by remembering, by anticipating, by proclaiming, and then by doing it, just by sharing. We are pledging our allegiance to you. We rehearse pledging it in a safe place, God, so that when it comes, there's muscle memory, and we, we proclaim your allegiance in the midst of Levi Stadium. We proclaim your allegiance in the midst of a host of people that might be against you. We thank you for this meal we're about to celebrate together. We go out to you. We, we bear your name joyfully this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.